Welcome to It's All Politics from NPR News. I'm Ron Elving. And I'm Ken Rudin. And Ken, it was a pleasure to be on Talk of the Nation with you this week. In the Political Junkie segment, you were actually wonderful. What I loved about it is that we only have one listener in the podcast, but we have like four times as many people who listen to Talk of the Nation. That's right. They have a bigger crew in the uh, production studio. That's right. But uh, a lot of people said that, oh, so that's what the podcast must be like. Wow. We should listen to the podcast. Yes. And they should. Yes, Absolutely. Sir. By the way, I don't know if this is a coincidence, but now that you've been on uh, Talk of the Nation, they're canceling it next week. <laughs> no. Yes. That's a very sad thing to yes. hear. That could not possibly be a coincidence, could it? No, I don't think it is. I don't think so. But at any rate, we do have a lot to talk about in the world of politics, beginning, of course, with the ongoing trip of the president to see every other country in the world he hasn't been to already. We went to Northern Ireland, Belfast. We went to Berlin, where he had been before in 2008 as a candidate. And next week, the president is going to be traveling to Africa. You know, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of people say that President Obama is going to all these countries to avoid these scandals. I mean, everything, everything you know, all these scandals we talked about. Controversies. We well, call them controversies. Well, it reminds people of Watergate. It reminds people of Filegate. Now he's at Brandenburg Gate. What kind of a scandal is that, Ron? I don't think that that was particularly what they had in mind, although they would probably prefer Brandenburg Gate. The president had to not only deal with uh, all of the NSA and various other surveillance controversies back in the United States. He had to deal with this as an excuse, if you will, that uh, Vladimir Putin could throw back at him when the United States and other countries in the G8 were pressuring Russia to back off of its support of President Assad in Syria and try to bring that war to a close. Obviously, Putin threw right back at the president, well, look at all these things that you're doing. Look at all this surveillance that you're guilty of. You're weakened back home. You're down in the polls. I don't have to listen to you. And I think even his allies, President Obama's allies, didn't seem to be so enthusiastic about the visit either. I know Angela Merkel has a campaign coming up, but isn't there some indication, at least from Edward Snowden, that the United States government even eavesdrop on its allies? So sure. between the drone attacks and the NSA spying, um, you compare this to President Obama five years ago, 200,000 people yes. you know, screaming and cheering for him. Well, he was a candidate. And he, was, he also represented hope. And he was a, a dream. There's a big difference between hope and Crosby. And there's a big difference between hope and reality. Yes. And, and I know a lot about is, reality. And <laughs> let us hope. The, the big difference here is that when you're running as a candidate, anyone can impose on you whatever their expectation or whatever their dream is of good American president, five years later, it's impossible to have fulfilled everyone's especially, hopes and dreams. Especially in 2008 when the rest of the world, let alone much of the United States, but the rest of the world was not so enamored with George W. Bush because of the war, because of the economy, all the, the, the cowboy diplomacy that he was accused of doing all this time. And President Obama was going to be the antidote to that. But and certainly a lot of issues on foreign policy, on privacy, things like that. Perhaps they're not seeing much of a change with Barack Obama in the White House. When you're running against the other party in the administration, in the White House, you are the great alternative. And anyone can hope for that to be whatever they want. And when you are the government, and the president is the government, then you are responsible for whatever the government may do, whether it was by your direction or not. NSA surveillance, president surely knowledgeable about that. Whether or not the IRS uh, targeting of certain conservative groups for extra scrutiny was directed from the White House has not been established. Much of a point of debate. But it doesn't matter in a way. Politically speaking, the president takes the smear no matter what the government does. And of course, uh, he's you know when he was in Berlin, it was around about the 50th anniversary of President Kennedy's famous speech before the Berlin Wall. President Obama this week had a different tone. But I come here today, in Berlin, to say 
complacency is not the character of great nations. Today's threats are not as stark as they were half a century ago, but the struggle for freedom and security and human dignity, that struggle goes on. And I've come here to this city of hope because the tests of our time demand the same fighting spirit that defined Berlin a half century ago. You know, those birds really got into that speech. I was going to say the birds were enthusiastic, more so than the crowd, perhaps. The crowd was smaller, but it was still a pretty friendly crowd. The president took his coat off. He struck a much more casual tone. I think he was intentionally trying to undercut the comparison to that huge crowd in 2008 and also to undercut the comparison to John F. Kennedy and actively trying to contrast with uh, the particular situation that Berlin was in 50 years ago, calling attention to how much the world situation in some places, such as in Germany, has dramatically changed for the better. Right. And of course, uh, some places like Syria have changed for the worse. And uh, President Obama, as we know, has been under tremendous pressure, not only from Republicans like John McCain, Lindsey Graham to intervene in the Syrian civil war, but former President Bill Clinton, who, of course, was so instrumental in reelecting Obama in 2012, called the president a fool, looked like a fool. He was a wuss. A wuss. For not intervening. And President Clinton said, well, you know, look what I did in Kosovo. And that's what the president should be doing in Syria uh, in 2013. Of course, there was no mention of what Bill Clinton should have done in Rwanda. But that's uh, the, there. there was no mention of that by Bill Clinton, yeah. although quite a number of other people did bring it up. It's a schoolyard taunt, is it not, to say that somebody's a fool or a wuss? And hey, by the way, you know, we can do both. But the the, the wuss comment in particular, I thought, was uh, unworthy. But Clinton drawing that contrast to Kosovo... When you remember that incursion or that use of American military power, which one should be thankful did not involve any American casualties, although it was obviously very violent and involved many casualties on the ground, that was denounced at the time by the president's opponents in Congress. The, the Republican leaders of both the House and the Senate, not all of them, but, but many of the conservative voices in the House and Senate at that time opposed Clinton's use of power in Kosovo. And even when you think back into Kosovo, there seemed like there was a clear bad guy. I don't, I mean... You know, is it comparable, though, to talk about Kosovo and, and the Balkans to what's going on in Syria? No, I don't think I so. I mean, that's not the Middle East. It's, it was a terrible conflict, and hundreds of thousands of people were killed or dislocated. But it was not the tinderbox that is the Middle East, and it did not involve all of the potential fallout with Iran and Russia. Israel. Israel, all of these New other Jersey. countries. New Jersey could have been Absolutely. involved. But apart from that, not nearly as comparable. No, but also, I mean, in Kosovo, there was a clear bad guy, Milosevic, and the the ethnic cleansing of Muslims, whereas in Syria, there seems to be as much of a brutal dictator Assad seems to be. The opponents are filled with some human rights violators themselves, shall we say. Yes. So it's not as clear. I mean, I, I applaud the president's hesitation in getting involved in Syria, but I still don't know what his policy is other than I don't know what to do. And, of course, he's going under tremendous pressure, not only from Bill Clinton, but the Republicans in Congress, Democrats in Congress. And now it looks like there will be some kind of minimal support for the rebels now that they seem to be on the retreat, perhaps a no-fly zone, perhaps some uh, medical aid to the rebels. But 
whatever it is, one, I don't know how successful or uh, consequential it'll be. And two, it just doesn't seem like a policy. It seems like just a reaction to what's going on in that week's news. One source of the pressure that the president is under is the president himself, because he said that if the Assad regime were to use chemical weapons, and if it were proven they had, that would be a red line. And had that been crossed, he would have to respond. Well, now the administration has admitted that their own intelligence shows the Assad regime did use such weapons. And now, in a sense, the fat's in the fire. They have to respond. It just seems weird to me for the president to make these kind of threats and then almost not realizing that if this line was crossed, there would be tremendous consequences. You can't just say, you know, North Korea, you've got to stop building those nuclear reactors or we'll do something. But what do we do? It just seems like there's a lot of bluff and posturing. And then when it comes time to make the decision or when the other side crosses that red line, There's no clear policy. That's right. Now, when you consider all the things that we've talked about so far in this podcast, we've mentioned the IRS controversy, we've mentioned the NSA surveillance controversy, we've mentioned the bad-looking posture of the administration on Syria. No matter what your perspective is, you're not happy with them. When you talk about all of those things and then this sort of underwhelming performance in the European trip... We are cataloging what looks a lot like a fifth year in an American presidency. The president's polls must have gone completely south. They must have just completely collapsed, right? Well, that's not what happened, and I'm not exactly sure. One, I don't know how much people are paying attention to the the president's trip abroad or even foreign policy. I don't know how closely they're following Syria. They do know that there is some uptick in economic numbers. I think people's confidence in the economy is improving. And so perhaps maybe the reason why it hasn't gone down is probably the same reason it hasn't gone up, because the good news about the economy is being perhaps countermanded by the bad news overseas and the scandals. Surely we must point out, though, that there are some polls, the YouGov.com, Uh, shows the president falling several points uh, since May. And we also have the CNN poll by ORC, which is their new pollster since they split with Gallup. And that shows the president dropping eight points in the last month. Now, that poll they had done previous month looked a little high, and this one looks a little low. But we're trading, as it were, Charlie Cook actually uh, said this, and I don't oftentimes throw out a quote to some other person outside the podcast when we have so much quotable material here on our own. But Charlie Cook, the well-known analyst, said, as a stock, if he were a stock, President Obama would trade in a very narrow range. He basically goes from the mid-40s to the mid-50s and then back to right around 50. And that has been the case for the last couple of years and was the case on Election Day. Well, you know, I mean, of course, we during 2012, of course, every time there's a, there's a change in the, uh, the economic figures, the employment numbers, the jobs created, it would either help the president or hurt the president. I don't think we're obsessed with President Obama's numbers in 2013 as we were in 2012, understandably. But, of course, 2016 is not far away. And one Democrat who is expected by almost everybody to run for president made some news in her own way this week. Yes, and she is Hillary Rodham Clinton. Although I don't think we've heard the Rodham part too much lately, she has made her peace with her political label as just Hillary Clinton. And then, of course, many people might add the first woman president of the United States. Well, the, the, the news of the week, although I'm not sure why it should have been the news of the week, because the uh, Ready for Hillary PAC uh, was formed back in January. But Claire McCaskill got some headlines this week because she became the first sitting member of Congress, Senator House, to 
push for Hillary Clinton to run for president. And I think it's interesting that it's, it's Claire McCaskill for two things. One, she was an early supporter of Barack Obama in 2008. Uh, and, and more importantly, perhaps, in 2006, when she first ran for the Senate, she said she would not let her daughter be alone with Bill Clinton, which, of course, <laughs> alienated the Clintons. And it was, it, it, it was the sort of thing that the Clintons do not forgive. Right. They forgive much. They forgive what they need to. But that kind of remark, they're not likely to. So it was interesting that Claire McCaskill saw it in her own political interest and her long-term interest to start uh, basically making friendly with what she clearly sees as the future of the Democratic Party. So you're seeing a lot of this shift where a lot of people who had been closely associated with Obama, quite critical of Clinton during the 2008 campaign, turning around now and trying to uh, make themselves part of what might be the next Democratic regime. Yeah, it's interesting that you don't see them ready for Biden. Although Joe Biden is alive and well and is still out there pitching on certain issues, which may or may not allow him to differentiate himself as a candidate in that different universe that we'd be in if Hillary, for some reason or another, decided or was unable to run. You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, there was a Hillary Clinton speech not too long ago that I thought said absolutely nothing. And we everybody's going gaga over her tweets. She's tweeted four times, I believe, as of this podcast. Four and, times. And she said nothing. And yet everybody like is just so excited and breathless at the thought of Hillary Clinton for running for president. Whereas Jeb Bush, for example, on the Republican side, recently gave us, has given several speeches as of late, mostly about immigration. But not getting any kind of enthusiasm from his side of the aisle. All right. Well, one reason he might not be generating that much enthusiasm is the ambivalence over the name Bush. And, you know, we have heard him say one of his parents wants him to run for president. The other one doesn't. That's kind of (laughs) a bit of an undercut. But the issue that's really the biggest drag on a Jeb Bush candidacy right now is his association with immigration. Immigrants create far more businesses than native-born Americans over the last 20 years. Immigrants are more fertile and they love families and they're more in, they have more intact families and they bring a younger population. Immigrants create an engine of economic prosperity. Fertile? Fertile, yeah. Uh, you can almost hear the tension in the audience as Jeb Bush gives that speech and he's clearly reading it. It's very carefully worded in a way. But the Faith and Freedom Coalition Conference where he was delivering that speech Uh, was heavily populated by social conservatives and also immigration issue conservatives, people who have great doubts about the current immigration legislation that he favors, that President Obama favors, that the Gang of Eight has written. They don't like it. They've got big questions about it. And the speakers at this same conference who were against that bill got much more friendly response. And when you think of the immigration issue in the Senate, and you think of a few weeks ago when the Gang of Eight seemed to be have to have some kind of momentum that they were just counting the hours until something was proposed and passed, that momentum seems to have faded as well. And the more the Senate talks about border security, the more Democrats are saying, wait a second, if this is going to be a border security bill, I'm not going to be on board this. And that's the dynamic by which this bill could collapse in the Senate and never even really make it to the House. On the other hand, there are other kinds of of uh, influences and weights being put on the scale. This week, we saw the Congressional Budget Office come out with a rather surprising assessment of the impact on the federal budget of this legislation. They said that bringing in new citizens, making them citizens, getting their contributions to Social Security and Medicare and so on, would actually be a net plus in the short run and in the longer run, in the 10-year period, in the second 10-year period. This would actually lower the federal budget deficit. I think that's counterintuitive for a lot of people. And at the same time, we also 
saw two Republican senators with pretty good conservative credentials, Bob Corker of Tennessee and John Hoven of North Dakota, uh, both come out with the idea that they could perhaps finesse the John Cornyn Amendment and come up with another way of strengthening the border, spend some more money on border security agents and so on, and get those nervous Democrats back on the bill who are kind of worried about border security and keep those key Republican votes that definitely need something to vote for on this bill uh, before they accept the overall package. They need an amendment that makes it look more border tough. And while we're not anywhere close to finishing up what's going on in the Senate, there's still the House to be concerned with. And Speaker John Boehner said this week that I am not bringing an immigration bill to the floor unless it has a majority of Republicans. This was a reaction to the Violence Against Women Act, uh, the uh, aid to Uh, Hurricane Sandy victims. Both measures were brought up in the House without Republican majority. It passed without Republican support. It it passed because there were enough Republicans and an overwhelming Democrats. But Dana Rohrbacher, the conservative Republican from Southern California, announced this week that if Boehner would bring this up without support of a majority of Republicans, his tenure would be questioned. As a matter of fact, there would be a palace coup to get rid of him as Speaker. Yeah. I really wonder about the timing of Boehner's turnaround on this after Dana Rohrabacher said those things, because it makes it look as though Dana Rohrabacher is somebody. Dana Rohrabacher is nobody. He's been in the Congress for 30 years, and he has no position of power whatsoever. But he does he speak speaks for... for a group of people who might very well do this. And I'm not denying the truth of what Rohrabacher said. I'm saying that the optics of having the speaker turn around and go, oh, well, I, 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 well, no, I'd never do that. I'd never bring it up unless I had a majority of the Republicans, makes him look very weak. Yeah, but I think that's exactly what happened. I think he does look weak. It reminds me sometimes when Mitch McConnell in the past being very willing to get some consensus with some Democrats, but you see Mitch McConnell and John Cornyn, the top two Republicans in the Senate, looking over their right shoulder to see if a primary challenges coming. They also seem to be following the leads of the Ted Cruz's and the Rand Paul's and the Mike Lee's of the Senate. I'm not saying what Dana Rohrabacher said is so significant, but John Boehner knows that having disappointed his majority in previous occasions like the violence against women and Hurricane Sandy, he's not going to do it with immigration. I think John Boehner's heart on the immigration bill is in getting a bill, in helping the gang of eight from the Senate get their legislation to the president's desk for signature. That's what I think he would want to do as a representative of the National Republican Party, hoping to reach out to Hispanics. Now, while we're talking about measures in the Senate that could be passed by the House, we had a measure in the House that basically has no chance at all of ever making it to a Senate vote, let alone a Senate victory. And the president said, of course, he would veto if it came to him. This is uh, restricting abortions past 22 weeks of pregnancy. Um, And the, the bill was passed 228 to 196, basically on party lines. Six Republicans voted no. Six Democrats voted yes. Don't you find that astonishing? I mean, you and I have been watching Washington long enough to remember when at least a third of the Democratic Party was pro-life, when perhaps more than a third of the Democratic Party was pro-life, and probably something close to that proportion of the Republican Party was pro-choice. But those days are gone. The parties have now completely moved lock, stock, and barrel into Republicans pro-life, Democrats pro-choice. This is perhaps one of the most stringent anti-abortion bills to pass either chamber of Congress in a long, long time. Uh, The Republicans do feel that they, on their side, they have the support of most Americans who feel that 
late-term abortions, and I don't know if 22 weeks is considered late-term abortion, but late in the term of pregnancy, those abortions are not popular, and they feel that, on that issue at least, the Republican Party is the more popular party. Ultimately, I think what they're doing here is they're showing their base voters, the House Republicans are, in their pitching for those issues that they care most about. You're trying to find somebody you can get to approve of Congress when, and we talked about the president's polls being down, the latest poll from uh, that same CNN ORC sounding, showed that Congress's approval was down to 9%. So I wonder if Congress isn't at this point giving up on the notion of pleasing the American people and just focusing in on whoever their core voters in their own primary are back in their home district, nobody else. Well, a lot of the Republicans in the House campaigned on anti-abortion language. And it's interesting, you know, you, you think of the lessons learned from 2012, and we were talking about this this week on Talk of the Nation, and you think, well, well, maybe the Republicans should be more cognizant of Latino voting strength and, and female voters and things like that. But then when you have arguments against immigration coming up and against uh, abortion coming up, you just wonder what audience is more important to them as we approach another midterm election. Another contentious, shall we say, issue uh, facing the American people is, of course, same-sex marriage. We haven't talked about it much lately, but the news of the week, Lisa Murkowski, uh, the senior senator from Alaska, became the third Republican to support uh, same-sex marriage, joining Mark Kirk of Illinois and Rob Portman of Ohio. Yes. And now Lisa Murkowski represents a really interesting mix of conservatives and Republicans in Alaska. Uh, This is a largely libertarian mix uh, for that particular state. And so perhaps there's a live-and-let-live mentality in their social attitudes that will allow her to survive this kind of position. But we also know that there are also a lot of religious conservatives in Alaska, and we're going to see that fight come to light again in the upcoming primary to choose an Alaskan nominee against Democratic Senator Mark Begich in 2014. Right. Let's remember back in 2010, Lisa Murkowski lost the Republican Party nomination because of the social conservatives' Tea Party opposition. They backed Joe Miller, and of course, uh, Joe Miller beat her in the primary, although she wound up winning another term on a write-in vote, the first senator to win write-in vote since? Uh, Strom Thurmond. Strom Thurmond in 1954. Very good, very good. I'm glad that you're paying attention to this. I am paying attention. I've I've been taking notes on all your past podcast performances. A a lot of P's there, a lot of plosive stuff there. Plosives. But anyway, uh, so, uh, but now going back to 2014 and reality, uh, Mead Treadwell, the lieutenant governor of Alaska. Hold it, hold it. Let me get that down again. Mead Treadwell. Okay. That is the name of the lieutenant governor currently of the state of Alaska. That's right. He was waiting to see if Sean Parnell, the governor, was going to run for the Senate. Um, so me, Treadwell, is now going to challenge Joe Miller, and uh, the winner takes on Mark Begich. So Begich is one of those uh, Democrats that the Republicans hope to knock off if they didn't take a majority of the Senate, although six seats seem to be a lot. Now, let's remember that it's six seats because we are making a couple of assumptions here. We're assuming that Ed Markey next week in Massachusetts will hold off the challenge of Gabriel Gomez. On Tuesday, right. And we are also assuming that the New Jersey Senate seat that had been Frank Lautenberg's that is temporarily being filled by an appointee of Chris Christie's, Jeff Chiesa, we're assuming that when uh, the election is held in October in New Jersey, they will probably elect Cory Booker or another Democrat, depending on the outcome of that primary, and that that will then put the clock back to 55, 45 Democratic votes in the Senate, and that when we get to the 2014 election, it's a six-vote hurdle for the Republicans to try to clear. 
Well, there's some sad news to come out of New Jersey this week, although it did not happen in the Garden State. It happened in the state of Italy. James Gandolfini, the great actor from The Sopranos, Tony Soprano, died at the age of 51. 51. That's something. That is truly disturbing and, of course, a great loss to American television screen and theater. And it's also interesting, uh, and if you want to make a link to politics here, uh, Governor Chris Christie, of course, is running for re-election this year, uh, was a big, big fan of Jimmy, his friend big Jimmy. Fan. Uh, Enormous fan. But, you know, that makes sense because the, the, the Sopranos is New Jersey. But the Dallas Cowboys is not New Jersey. All right. Have we already talked about the fact that Chris Christie roots for the Dallas Cowboys? He roots for the Dallas Cowboys. When the New York Giants and the New York Jets play in New Jersey. Right. And he roots for the Dallas Cowboys. Now, it's bad enough that he roots for the Mets over the Yankees. It's bad enough that he roots for the New York Rangers over the New Jersey Devils. But the Dallas Cowboys... Yeah, but you bringing this up is obviously a subject of some prejudice because everyone can hear your Texas accent. Texas accent? Accent. And that's it for this week's political podcast, partner. Uh, forget about it. You can follow NPR's political coverage at npr.org slash politics. You know, I'm Ron Elving. And I'm Ken Rudin. The podcast is produced by Bracton Booker and edited by Kathy Shaw. Join us again next week, y'all, for It's All Politics from NPR. You'd better. Oh.